It is Monday morning here on WHMP on Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined on Mayor's Monday, this Mayor's Monday, by the Mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. Mayor, I'd like to start by asking you about what we were talking about just before we came on the air that Buzz had raised, which is the announcement that there will be a new Holyoke, what has been called the Soldier's Home, that I now believe is will be called the Veteran's Home. An enormous undertaking and significant for the city, and I'm wondering if we could hear your perspective on this. Well, good morning, and as always, thanks for having me back on your show. My perspective is uh, it's about time. I, I remember going to a, um, a Democratic committee meeting where the late Marty Dunn was honored that day in, in his speech. At the end of his speech, he just randomly came out of nowhere and says, uh, uh, long live the, the soldier's home. The day that the soldier's home closes is the day that the state house needs to close instead. Um, I think that, you know, this is a, a, an incredible asset for our veterans and um, uh, can you know, really put a price tag on uh, meeting the needs of our veterans. And so I'm just, it, the sad part of this is that it came to light during unfortunate circumstances, uh, but nevertheless, uh, it's great to see our state and regional partners come together and make this happen, this long overdue um, upgrade happen. And it is born of a tragedy, which is, of course, the many deaths that occurred at the Holyoke Soldiers Home during COVID and on account of what most reports make clear was the malfeasance of the administrators of the former Holyoke Soldiers Home who put COVID patients, highly contagious COVID patients, and mixed them with the uh, uh, residents of the Soldiers Home who were not infected with COVID, leading to this enormous outbreak and deaths. I mean, that's got to be something that weighs heavily still in your mind and on the city. Mayor? I, yeah, primarily... I think about those families, um, talk about laying heavily on people's minds, nothing more heavily than the families of those um, who who lost a loved one in that building. Uh, you know, I can't really account or speak for uh, what happened, um, uh, you know, before we came on board here, but now you have a new, a, a lot of folks in positions of leadership and turnover and new people really trying to um, uh, take the situation as it exists and, and, uh, I don't want to use the word move forward or, or be better. Cause I don't think there's nothing we can ever do to bring back the lives of the people lost. Um, uh, but considering the scope of this project, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's about time that, that we're, that we're looking forward to step up, uh, our game here. Um, again, nothing will never bring back those families, and that's the incredible, unfortunate part. Um, and, you know, my heart goes to the, the families who's lost anybody in that building during COVID. Mayor, this project is hundreds of millions of dollars. And I think, if I read or heard this correctly, that it's a five year timeline until the new Holyoke Veterans Home is going to open. Is, is that right? 
That's what it's looking like from looking like from what I understand that it's they're building a part of it and then they have to uh, knock down the old one and then build in its place. So there's some musical chairs going on. It's, it's a little uh, complicated, um, uh, but it sounds like to me, you know, five years, five years can go by relatively quick. And that's probably a worst case scenario. I think it's pretty interesting, Mayor. There was talk during this process of moving the new veterans home from Holyoke and the decision was made to keep it in, Ho- in Holyoke in part to honor those, I think, roughly 75 people who uh, died uh, that you two were just alluding to. But this is it's going to be a quarter of a million dollars from the federal government. The state government has authorized $400 million. And one thing that I find really interesting in that conversation about whether to keep it in Holyoke is that so many of the Vietnam veteran population has aged, they're in their 70s and 80s. And the reason why they've decided on this, I think, 264-bed number is to accommodate Iraq um, and uh, Afghanistan veterans in the future. So it looks like this will be a feature of Holyoke for decades to come. Yeah, and I mean, think about those those veterans, too, who have lived there for a long time and have already now called Holyoke their home. And I think there's a, a lot of good reasons why to uh, keep the building here. I think the interest to want to move it out may have been because they wanted to close that chapter. Um, and I think that that's why the administration instead focused on rebranding and renaming the facility. Um, uh, so I, I, you know, you got veterans in there and future veterans looking forward to, to, uh, to call Holyoke home. Does a facility like this add benefit the city economically? Yeah, think of the, the workforce, uh, the people that uh, visit or go to work there that spend um, uh, in the area. I don't have any formal study to prove otherwise, but usually that's the case. When a hospital uh, moves in or any large institution moves in, you think about the secondary impact um, uh, to the economy that it has to offer. Mayor, I'd like to turn to another topic that we had touched on when you were last with us. And it is the fentanyl epidemic, and it is an epidemic in cities across the country. And Holyoke is hardly immune. I'm wondering if you could give us your perspective and an outline of how big a problem this is in Holyoke and what your city is doing to address it. So, Bill, opioid addiction, it's its one of the two urban blights that since I've assumed office has kept me up every single night the other one is homelessness and the other and the two are 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 related uh you know i i grew up in the city i i've waited i've witnessed ravages of drug addiction i've i've i witness it still every day and i'm confronted just about every single day by residents and, and business owners and school teachers and mothers and you know they all ask they all ask me the same question. Mayor, what are you going to do about this? And I think that it's definitely a, a, a fair question. And I need to say what we are doing. There are a lot of people involved in, in responding compassionately and uh, also creatively. Uh, you know, 
we recognized that part of the problem was a lack of substance abuse education. We took $100,000 of cannabis impact fee money, invited community agencies to submit proposals uh, for substance abuse prevention. Uh, so we've received some uh, proposals for that and um, some programs will be underway. Uh, we've maintained a community service center uh, down on Ray Street, offering aid to people that are struggling with opioid addiction and homelessness and, and other issues. It's actually a, a police substation, but it's not about arresting people. It's, it's the focus really is about helping them. You know, we've joined a collaborative group called the Hoyo Hub. This is a collaboration of health and human service professionals working to create better outcomes. Uh, we partner with organizations, Hope for Holyoke, Roca, Odyssey House, Viability, Nueva Vida, Community Reentry Services, and other boots on the ground interventions. But it just feels, Bill, like no matter what we do, um, it barely scratches the surface. Uh, by, you know, making it known that Holyoke, we offer care and compassion and treatment. We've become destination for people suffering from addiction. Some of these people who've come here from out of town um, and don't leave, they stay to, to seek treatment and services, have contributed to another layer of quality of life issues uh, for that city. So it's like that old saying, when the act of kindness backfires, let no, let, let no good deed go unpunished. So it's, it's a very complicated situation. Um, we do anything and everything we can to, to tackle it at every angle, angle but the reality is, is that this is a state and national problem that Holyoke cannot resolve on its own. Is there any regional cooperation among mayors uh, in terms of trying to combat the opioid epidemic, the fentanyl epidemic? I, I, there's certainly conversations among mayors, um, but no real um, collaborations with teeth that um, help de-escalate the issue uh, from taking place. But what I can tell you is for the past three, four decades, Holyoke's been doing its part. We're a compassionate city. I, you know, my family's benefited from Holyoke's compassion growing up, many friends and neighbors. Uh, what it, when I look at data and what surrounding communities are doing, they're not doing nearly as enough as Holyoke or even Springfield for that matter. And what we need is cities and towns across the Commonwealth where folks are being pushed out of their towns and streamlined to communities like Holyoke and Springfield, they need to step up their game. When you say that other communities need to step up their game, it makes me think that the state government needs to step up its game in terms of providing services and resources uh, and alternatives for uh, youth in particular. And I'm wondering whether there have been conversations with the uh, uh, governor's office about this. Uh, I know it's a problem that it, uh, preceded Maura Healy's uh, ascending to the governor's, uh, governor's chair in the corner office, but still, it does seem to me like it's a statewide, nationwide as well, problem. And I'm wondering if there's any relief in sight that you see from the state government or the federal government for that matter. So I could say that this administration, um, from what I've observed today, has been stepping it up very progressively and pro proactively on a short term while longer term plans are being developed. Uh, what the administration inherited, you know, are, and also post-pandemic post issues, you know, 
has contributed to this issue and, and the administration stepped in and inherited it. Um, uh, the administration, I think, needs our help, um, you know, as they go forward with trying to um, uh, redistribute or allocate resources to tackle these needs. We have communities that say NIMBY, not in my backyard. I went to a, um, a, um, uh, the, the Western Mass to End Homeless Conference at HCC and some data put together by Jerry McCaffrey from Springfield showed uh, the county comparison in Western Massachusetts when it comes to homelessness. And you look at Hampshire County, Berkshire County, um, uh, what's the other county there? Hampshire, I know Hamden. Hampshire, Franklin, Hamden. Franklin, Franklin County. You, you mean where you I know, live, Mayor? Yes, Franklin County. <laughs> you got Berkshire's a couple hundred, and then Hamden County, thousands. The number goes up dramatically. And so that, lets, that leads me to wonder, you know, we put up these services to help needs of people in Holyoke. What are we doing in those communities so that people can stay in their communities so they don't get pushed out by their towns? Um, I, you know, there's this larger systemic problem that it's inequitable um, at the moment. The Commonwealth is dealing, I think Massachusetts, I mean, we, we beat our, apparently we beat you Google it in the news, uh, the amount of overdoses, um, we've surpassed the amount we've ever had in previous times in the Commonwealth. You know, you look at these issues in cities and towns, it's all hands on deck. I think we need to work together um, so that we can offer better outcomes for people so that we can help folks that are in need. Uh, we're going to be taking a break when we come back, Mayor. I just wanted to ask you one more question about this, which is one part that is under local control is whether police consider drug addiction to be a criminal act or whether it's somebody who needs medical services. We'll pick that up right after the break. This is Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk. We'll be back with the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia, to address the issue, that issue, right after this. After all this time Can you imagine what it's like to be with you now? More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. 
Does your knee pain keep getting worse? How about that pain in your shoulder, hip, or back? Don't let them tell you steroids and surgery are your only options. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics can make that pain go away with all-natural advanced regenerative medicine. They're helping people here every day with these amazing natural treatments that restore and repair damaged joint tissue. It's like turning back the clock. Regenerative medicine uses concentrated healing agents from your own body to stimulate that damaged tissue in your joints so they can work again like they're supposed to. And there's zero downtime. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in this exciting medical breakthrough. Patients here are getting real lasting relief and are saying no to surgery and drugs. If you have pain due to injury or arthritis, check out this remarkable option. And the consultation is free. Call QC Kinetics now at 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. On this Mayor's Monday on WHMP, we continue our conversation with the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. Buzz, you had a question for the mayor before the break. Why don't you repose it? I think, obviously, uh, Mayor Josh Garcia, you are uh, very attuned to the level of compassion that's required. But many say that part of the uh, fentanyl crisis and opioid crisis uh, resolution lies locally, not just nationally and internationally, but also with police departments who can recognize that it really is more a medical problem than it is Mm -hmm. a question of criminality. I'd I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, for anyone that's engaging or, or um, that's using drugs, um, you know, these folks are sick. They're, they're, they're addicted to this very strong um, drug that, you know, it's you, you gotta you have to look at it in the lens of compassion when dealing with with these folks specifically, which is why we have a network of programs and services that you know we talked about earlier um, that are doing what they can to tackle these issues, including our local police department, who who um, has been also a partner in ways how we think outside the box to tack, tackle these issues. Uh, it's really the, the the drugs coming into to the city um, uh, for whatever reason that might exist. And, and you know, it's like you, you, you dig deeper and deeper into this issue and it's like peeling an onion. It, it gets more interesting and more interesting. And and that's where it becomes difficult is how do you how do you proactively address? I can tell you some long term solutions that we have at play. And, uh, but what about the issues of right now and the quality of life issues that people are going through? It, it's it's you, my, you know, my head spins every time I think about it. Uh, Mayor Garcia, is there a uh, uh, change or any change that you could point to with regard to policing in Holyoke in this regard? In other words, we've had lots of discussion among many of the municipalities about alternatives to policing and civilian responses and not bringing court charges and instead trying to direct uh, people to services and assistance. Uh, has there been a formal change of that sort in the Holyoke Police Department yet? That's that's what Holyoke's been doing for a while. Uh, I don't I I don't think you ever hear anything about anything where the Holyoke Police is on the news about making someone's life who's addicted, uh, you know, uh, terrible or putting them down the wrong path. We have a local police. 
that has been embedded with our partners and try to do what they can proactively to help people meet their needs where they are. Um, I think, you know, a walk around the city, our city can, can, can prove that to you. But you know, that, that, that's where uh, creates a bit of a challenge here in our community when you have the business owner and the school teachers and the mothers and, you know, um, you know, they see what they see and, and they're going through the challenges that they're going through. And you want people in our community that want the police to do more than what they're actively doing now. And the, the situation is a little bit more complicated than that, than what people realize. And so the, the name of the game here is to, to, to uh, uh, meet, help people meet needs and trying to overcome their, their, their challenges, whatever it may be, wherever they are in their journey. Um, I, but, you know, again, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult as more and more folks uh, seek to come to Holyoke um, for needs, and we just don't have the resources to really uh, to effectively keep up with the magnitude of the problem. But our solution is not locking people up. We we I tell you that's like last resort, um, if it is even an option. Mayor Garcia, you just mentioned school teachers, and we are getting close to the beginning of a new school year. Obviously, the addiction uh, epidemic uh, it plays itself out in the schools uh, with families and with families who have kids in the school, uh, which brings me to the question of whether Holyoke will, at some point in the foreseeable future, reclaim its school system from the state receivership and be able to try to direct its own future and fortunes with regard to the education of its young people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the last year and a half, two years, and even beyond that, uh, we have proven time and time again, what our community is capable of doing when they come together to take care of our own. Um, you know, the politics here in Holyoke doesn't exist like in other communities, particularly those that are currently under receivership. We have uh, a collaborative relationship between the different functions of our government, um, uh, you know, and we have community organizations and partnerships that are strong, that work with the school district to help um, uh, meeting the needs of our student body population so that uh, they're able to go to school and do well. Um, and we have creative programs and services that the, even the school district has came up with uh, to help the needs of our most challenging student body population. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, local control is, is at an arm's reach at the moment. We're going to see it happen very soon. Um, and, you know, I feel very optimistic about it. Oh, stay there for a second. I would love to know the basis for your optimism. And you said magic words very soon. I mean, really? I mean, we've been looking at uh, the takeover of the Holyoke schools, the schools being in receivership for many years now. And we keep hearing about the light at the end of this tunnel, but, well, we never seem to get there. And I would appreciate knowing the basis for your optimism that, in fact, receivership, we you can see an end coming. So <clears throat> when it when when it comes to receivership in general, it's it's no joke. You know, a lot of folks you got different opinions about it. 
doesn't matter if it's a municipality receivership or the school district receivership. There's a reason why um, uh, communities go into receivership. And a large contributing factor of that, when you, when you look at the trend, is a dysfunctional government, never mind me meeting. And usually the dysfunction of the government is what contributes to, um, uh, uh, it impacts the quality of services and then eventually impacts the taxpayers. Here we're talking about the school district. I, you know, Holyoke's hit every benchmark it can to, to prove that, that that we're, we're indeed capable of, of being in, in local control. The challenge currently, um, really what the state looks at is outcomes, improving outcomes. Uh, this administration that is in the governor's office at the moment realizes that there are a level of quality of life issues that Hoyle's dealing with where you can't put the school system in a box and compare it to what's happening in other districts that have nowhere near what the quality of life issues we we're happening and also you know not adequate resources to even keep up with our responsibilities i think through efforts of the stupid student opportunity act it's made available more monies than we've ever seen before which allows us to um do more than what we have ever done before uh the the uh, the the superintendent has introduced new programs and has been able to make a dent uh, working together with the um, school staff and, and improving outcomes. There has been some progress. COVID then puts everybody back, yet alone Holyoke puts everybody back. So that skews the data a little bit. Um, but I think this, the state realizes that, you know, this isn't, you know, th th this isn't um, about Holyoke, you're incapable, we're not working with you, leave it up to us. I think there's a bigger understanding that it's a little bit more complicated than what we all think. There are a lot of things that we can celebrate and Holyoke is, you know, nothing like the challenges that might be going on in other communities that are in receivership. And so the conversations are very positive. I can't say there's an agreement to do this next week or next month. But I could tell you that there's um, uh, some forward momentum uh, when we have these discussions uh, to uh, hopefully come have it come to fruition very soon as far as giving the control back to the district. Let me just follow up with one or two more quick questions on this. Is there some criterion that the state is using, that the Department of Education is using that says to Holyoke, when you do yeah, yeah. X, Y, or Z, we'll get out of, yeah. we'll get out of your there head. Isn't. No, you would think it's that it would, you would think, right. But it's not that simple. Um, there is, there isn't any. And so when you say you're optimistic, but not this week, not today, n this year, next year, I mean, is you, when you say so you're folks with, with the, what the public wants to hear is a clear and, and I get it and I sympathize with it and I'm, you know, it, it, it contributes to the frustration. Um, you know, we hear, you know, what's the blueprint that's going to get us there and why this and how come that and then you get the fingers and everything. And, you know, when it comes to these kind of things, it's 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 timing. Everything is timing. And there are layers of issues that 
don't make this black and white, unfortunately. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strategic game. And uh, considering how far we've gotten in these conversations, I'm very comfortable in my, uh, in my position at the moment as far as how this is going to end up. Well, that was a very delicately phrased answer, and we appreciate it, Mr. <laughs> mayor. We do. <laughs> we have been speaking with the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. Thank you for joining us on this Mayor's Monday, Mayor. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Protesters gathered at Northampton City Hall to rally against alleged police brutality on Saturday. Workers Unite organized the protest after an incident of alleged police brutality against a 60 year old woman during a traffic stop in Northampton back in April. This comes after Northampton police pulled over Maricel Driosh for a broken headlight, threw her on the ground to get her out of the car, then pepper sprayed her. Attorney Dana Goldblatt is representing Driosh. So this is not for policing excessive force. And in fact, Jody Casper made a statement that she is forbidden from disciplining him because according to standards of policing that they reviewed, this is what he was supposed to do. Driosh is now seeking financial compensation from the city. Thomas Coulomb, former Ware Fire Chief, has been indicted for embezzling over $28,000 by a Hampshire County grand jury. He will be arraigned on four counts of larceny over $1,200 at a future date. Amherst African Heritage Reparations Committee will present a final report to the town council next month. Affordable housing, home ownership opportunities, and educational opportunities for youth will most likely top the recommendations. The assembly is still looking for public input following a survey earlier this spring. The town has committed $2 million obtained through cannabis tax revenue for reparations initiatives. We're going to have a bit of a sun cloud mix. Overall dry conditions, highs are in the low to mid 80s. And tonight the showers could roll through in the late evening, early into tomorrow morning with lows in the low to mid 60s. Then on Tuesday, tomorrow showers are going to be early in the day, go on throughout most of the day. Those highs are going to be in the low to mid 70s. I'm Jack Wood with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. 
A Northampton man contends with his slow passage into blindness. What's that like? Andrew Leland's new book, The Country of the Blind, is part memoir, part historical and cultural investigation. Leland's determined not to merely survive the transition, but to revel in that which makes blindness enlightening, accepting uncertainty, connecting with others across differences. Warm and funny, The Country of the Blind is an exhilarating tour of a way of being most of us have never paused to consider. Pick up The Country of the Blind at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www.westernmassna.org or call us at 1-866-NA-HELP-YOU. That's 1-866-624-3578. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are joined by Professor of African American Studies at UMass Amherst, Amalkar Shabazz. Shabazz is, Professor Shabazz is a stalwart political activist here in the Valley and has been very active in the reparations movement in Amherst, which is of particular significance, I think, because... Well, let's look at the report, the news report on the front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette. Dateline Amherst Reparations Final Report coming in September. Participation is still being sought from the public as document take shape. This by staff writer Scott Merzbach. Educational and recreational programs for youth and affordable housing that includes home ownership opportunities could be prioritized for funding in the final report to be delivered by the African Heritage Reparations Assembly next month. The town committee is in the final stages of completing its recommendations with a draft copy of the report expected to be circulated among town officials in advance of a final report in preparation to the ta- in presentation and presentation to the town council on either September 11th or September 18th. Professor Shabazz, you've been involved in this fight for reparations in Amherst for a long time. We've touched on it in our previous conversations. It seems now that it's getting to crunch time and questions are being raised about what the $2 million program will be and significantly whether $200,000 a year approximately from the town of Amherst to this fund actually can make a significant difference in the lives of people. So Tell us about the big picture, and then I'd love to get to some of the specifics. Professor? Yes, indeed. So uh, thanks for this segment. The, uh, the big picture is really this. Uh, true reparations uh, will come through the federal level and through a, uh, a major uh, uh, program 
of, of direct monetary compensation along the lines, I hope at least, as the economist William Darity has projected. What we are doing in Amherst, similar to what was first done in Evanston, is trying to build toward that big picture through local municipal actions within the constraints of what we can do. And we understand it's, it's, it's a very constrained environment. Uh, Amherst, the town of Amherst, uh, prior to all of this getting started, had uh, four big major capital projects uh, that, that were the talk of the town, including our, our, our public library, Jones Library, being massively renovated, including uh, our fire department, including uh, our Department of Public Works, as well as a major um, building uh, of a new elementary school for our district. Those involve millions. Those involve borrowing because there isn't enough of a tax base to pay for, for uh, any of those four projects outright. And so it's the same thing with reparations. It's a very constrained economic uh, uh, reality that we face here in the town in terms of doing uh, uh, something more significant. But what we're doing is significant because, as we say, we believe it builds momentum towards true reparations. So that's, that's the, uh, the, the view from 20,000 feet up. So, Professor, I would like to understand what the it is. If you had your druthers, if you had the magic wand and you could wave it, what programs and you had available funding, what would you want Amherst to do? Well, um, again, I want to have that that conversation, think about that within the constraints of what I know is is really possible. And. here are the, the, the it's that we're concerned about. We're, we're concerned about housing and home ownership. Uh, we've looked throughout time historically, and we see that the, the extent to which black people have lived in Amherst, it has largely been a kind of fringe existence. Back during the time of slavery, they physically lived uh, on the property of white people and were the property of white people, even after going into the, the late 1700s, early 1800s, when the institution of slavery is ended in the state of Massachusetts. That's still how most black people lived in this, in this town. They lived physically on some property of white people at the pleasure of the white people. If they fell out with the white people, they had to get out of town. That's as simple as that. Uh, and that goes on all pretty much throughout the 19th century. There is only a small number of African Americans through, through dogged determination that are able to, to uh, 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 get a home. Uh, uh, efforts by ancestral bridges are bringing attention to that on Hazel Avenue and in a few other spots in the town. Um, and so it's, it, it, it's a, been a, a serious crisis all the way up through the 20th century when the first African-American was hired by UMass to be a, pro, to be a full-time uh, tenure-track college professor, uh, Dr. Edwin Driver in the sociology department, he couldn't get a place to live here. We've got deed restrictions where people were selling, house, selling their house in the 1950s and they stipulate, do not sell 
any uh, uh, person of African descent, Negro colored, whatever they use. Uh, uh, you must never sell this house. So it's been that type of community, that kind of apartheid, uh, racist reality in Amherst, and, and, it, and it has deeply affected the, pos- the, the problem of black people being able to be homeowners, being able to uh, have affordable housing, and really live in this place. And it continues right down to today. So we are putting one area we've been discussing and, and will be voting soon to approve is putting real strength behind uh, the town, really looking at the resources that are out there, looking at private and public efforts to create more affordable housing, how to prioritize within that the uh, uh, black black home ownership and, and black acts, the access of black people to, to affordable uh, housing and, and uh, uh, of, of whatever form in this town. So that's one critical area. Evanston, Illinois, and its uh, groundbreaking precedent-setting reparations program focused on housing. And it, the city of Evanston, Illinois, did that for a specific reason. And it was that Evanston had been been subjected to redlining, that people of color, African-Americans in particular, could only live in one part of the city because there's only one part of the city that the banks would actually lend money for mortgages for people of color. I'm wondering if there's anything comparable to that in Amherst that would lend itself and say, okay, we can and should use Evanston as a model. Yeah, it's been it's worse. Uh, we didn't even have the problem of redlining here. The whole town was redlined, so black people just had no no foothold, no no really nothing. Like I said, the ancestral bridges has been bringing to light uh, uh, some of the, the the very very tiny uh, uh, you know numbers of, uh, of of blacks that uh, moved in, uh, in in different places. But uh, and, and even to note, even when we talk about apartments and, and, and uh, rental units, one of them right in our heart of our downtown was a was a space in the 1800s where a number of blacks were able to, you know, uh, get a little place to live. And um, it, it was not, you know, it was substandard. It was substandard building, but uh, the and rundown. And so the local residents regarded it as the beehive that there was that the blacks there had swarmed had formed a a kind of swarm in their town and and likened them to to wasp and gnats and and uh, insects uh that that the best thing that could ever happen is when it caught fire and burned them out you know it, it that's the the been the prevailing kind of uh, mentality and uh and so it's even worse than Evanston you didn't even have a have a chance to build up much of a uh, a, a, a black neighborhood, a black area, uh, uh, other than Hazel Avenue and a few other streets, Northampton Road, where you had a, a, a small um, a presence. But uh, uh, so, you know, this, this obviously then becomes one kind of priority area. Uh, you know, few professors uh, uh, right here on my block, there are two of us. I guess we're a black neighborhood since there, there are two of us uh, right here on, on my block. But uh, um, but other than, you know, a few here and there, uh, it, it's a real general problem that if we're going to have uh, uh, and address 
the 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 legacy of of of, um, of slavery and and racism, then then one of the key areas is going to be in how are we making sure and 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 think about it. When the, the, the monetary reparations at the federal level happens, we will have already begun to build an infrastructure by setting this priority on, 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 on the issue of, of affordable home ownership and housing. We'll already be, be moving things in that right framework. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Professor Amilcar Shabazz. We're talking about reparations. The report is due very soon. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. Smith Academy in Hatfield is accepting school choice applications now. With an average class size of 10, Smith Academy supports all students. They offer more than 20 clubs, 8 AP courses, 14 sports teams, work study, and internships, and free dual enrollment at HCC and Smith College. Computer science for all students. With a graduation rate of over 95%, most college bound, Smith Academy can prepare you for the next step. No cost to apply or attend. Call us or go to HatfieldPS.net and schedule a tour today. Technicians, this is your chance. Get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus at Gary Rum Hyundai or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. Be part of the family and receive truly exceptional compensation and full benefits. Join the Time Magazine's National Dealer of the Year team with a proven track record of team members averaging over 10 years at Gary Rum Hyundai. Technicians get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. To learn more and apply, go to GaryRumHyundai.com slash family. Take WHMP and news from the Pioneer Valley with you everywhere. Download the TuneIn Radio app and search for WHMP. It's free, it's easy, and it's wherever you are. WHMP on TuneIn Radio. Your expectations. What are your expectations for your new home edition? Construct Associates in Northampton can show families just like yours a world of possibilities. From antique to ultra-modern, kitchen and bath, additions, design and construction, residential and commercial, renovation and restoration. Construct Associates in Northampton and your imagination. Expanded and released by serious craftsmen doing quality work. Visit their website right now at constructassociates.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are continuing our conversation with Professor Amokar Shabazz, who is a professor and chair, I believe, still of the African-American Studies, Africana Studies Department at UMass Amherst. We had continued our conversation about reparations during the break. And, Buzz, you brought up, I think, a really interesting point, and I'd appreciate it if you'd pose that question again uh, to the professor. Sure, Professor Shabazz. Last week we had on a couple of um, activists for reparations, and they believe that it shouldn't just be a, a governmental pro- issue. It should be an issue for all of us. Jane Stevenson and Kate Stevens both uh, pointed to the National the National African American Reparations Commission, which is called NARC by acronym. And uh, NARC asked the question, do you believe that racial reconciliation is impossible without reparations? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. Uh, And let me say one thing. Uh, We're working on a future black in the valley 
to invite the, uh, the chair of Africana Studies, the W.E.B. Du Bois Department, Dr. Yolanda Covington-Ward. She's uh, just finished her first year and taking us into a di- dynamic second year of her leadership. To the question, reconciliation, uh, I think our history in this country shows. I think the, 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 uh, the great mind of Abraham Lincoln already laid it out. Uh, although he didn't live to try to to actually accomplish uh, reparations, uh, the and and the Freedmen's Bureau, which developed under his leadership, which is the closest we ever got to to any kind of rep- federal reparations, uh, uh, died with him pretty much. It uh, it nonetheless he recognized there would be no reconciliation until you could you could address that, and and I don't even know how much he he had confidence that reparations could do it, uh, especially coming out of a whole war. But, but he understood that, that it, was, it, it was clear that if there was to be uh, some reconciliation between black and white, you'd have to, you'd have to deal with that. I think that the, um, and we see this, we can see this in Amherst history. Uh, one of the things we, we lay out in the, we'll be laying out in the report, is just to recognize how this, the recurring issues in the ni- late 1960s and after 1968 or so 69 there was a major uh commission established in um uh, uh, uh amherst after the the assassination of dr king and cities and town municipalities were blowing up were, were on fire all over the country um the the question became you know what what what's what about amherst and in fact, it's interesting, one of the members, the youngest member of that commission in 69 was William Sandy Garrity as a student at Amherst Regional High School. Jules Chemetsky and others tapped him, seeing the, you know, his brilliant mind even in high school, and said, we want you to have a youth perspective, to have your perspective. We want you on this commission. And he was on the commission. And you can read the report. We, we studied the report over our, our time as the African Heritage Reparations Assembly. And right there they laid out all of these critical problems festering in Amherst, still unaddressed in Amherst, and coloring the, the, the relations between, between black and white, coloring the situation of black people in Amherst right back there in 69. But again, no reparations, no apology, no fundamental grappling with the history of this problem and the gravity of this problem. And where are we now? We're the same place we were in 2020 when the council met and said we need to address structural racism and we want to commit to ending structural racism. So from 69 to 2020, same thing. And even along there, there have been different commissions and blue ribbon commissions. Um, uh, the, the brother out of uh, Springfield was tapped one time, uh, a Hearst. Uh, with the uh, uh, the newspaper, and he headed a commission. Sometimes it it was more focused on uh, UMass uh, a, a, as a site of of, of racial friction. Sometimes a few years ago, it was focused at Amherst College. You had the Black Awakening at Amherst College, and and the uh, Black students and their allies rose up, demanding Amherst College, you know, change. 
So it's going to stay that way. It's going to continue that way with ebbs and flows until we get this right, and that's through reparations. Do you think that the reparations and the recommendations about recommendations for reparations that the uh, that, that in this report that will be released soon, do you think that it will function as a model for other municipalities, and I'm specifically thinking about Northampton, which is just embarking yeah. on this endeavor now? I hope there's some things people can can take away from it. I mean, one of the big things we had to grapple with, and I think others will be able to to, to grapple with, is you know, two million dollars, which which is about the the most we could reasonably expect with all the other things going on in this this town, could be could be kind of a you know get a commitment to set aside. You know, that would take care of me. That would take care of a milk Paz if I could get the two million, you know, as my <laughs> reparations. You know, that would that would that would be square business. I'll I'll take it from there. You know, I'll I'll go find the uh, a mutual investment company and, and, and I'm good. But that's not gonna do it for the masses. That's not gonna do it for the the one thousand plus you know, regular year-round African-American residents hanging on, try, clinging to existence in this town, many of them, uh, that's not, you know, we don't have two million for, for each individual, uh, 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 you know, qualifying individual. So, so we've got to look, look at this thing in a, in a, uh, as it's tied to a bigger reconciliation. We have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Professor Amalkar Shabazz on this special edition of Black in the Valley. Thank Black in the Valley. Thank you, Professor. Really appreciate your time and insight. Thank you. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn the Literacy Project is the place for you. WHMP North Tyler. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And uh, there is a particularly chilling uh, story that we'd like to uh, talk about in this morning's fish wrap. Today's news is tomorrow's fish wrap is arising out of a locality, Marion, uh, Kansas, where a raid uh, was conducted on the offices of a local newspaper on Friday, as well as the homes of the newspaper's publishers and reporters. Uh, it was a five police officer force, all five plus two sheriff's deputies, conducted this raid, which included the seizure of computers and cell phones, and reporting materials, 
And it all came about when a local restaurant proprietor, Carrie Newell, uh, had police uh, remove reporters from an open forum where they were invited to attend by U.S. Congressman uh, Jake LaTurner's uh, staff. The reporters came. They were removed because they were critical of a uh, uh, right-wing faction of uh, the city uh, politic. And um, then what happened was uh, one of the people, Carrie Newell, this business person, a restaurant proprietor, found out that they, somebody had leaked to them some evidence that she had been convicted of drunk driving and had continued to use her vehicle without a license and without getting too deeply into the lead. According to this Guardian article, what happened is it was never, the information they got was never published when they found out it was a divorcing husband who gave them the information. But nevertheless, Newell was upset, turned to the police, and had a raid done because um, she was angry at the newspaper office. Um, And the police complied. They got a warrant from a judge magistrate, a federal judge magistrate, despite the fact that the law says before you invade a newspaper's uh, physical uh, offices, you first have to subpoena materials. That was never done. It was probably an illegal search to begin with, an illegal warrant, but it is chilling. Bill, what do you think about this? Well, a couple of things. The state court, right? Yes. And the interesting and interesting aspect of the warrant uh, was that the affidavit, or in, f- in federal terminology, the application for a search warrant, those are the statements under oath that, are, that prove the probable cause to believe that there is evidence of a crime to be seized at the place to be searched. Uh, the affidavit has not been made public. It has to become a public document soon, and it has not been made public yet. There are rumors that there was no actual application or affidavit filed in support of the search warrant of the newspaper, uh, and that is, as you point out, a violation of federal law to conduct a raid on a newspaper office unless it is the most extreme uh, circumstances. There has to be a subpoena. The documents and material that sought has to be brought before a grand jury or to an, an, another appropriate official body to listen or look at the material. Uh, the the judge, the magistrate who issued the warrant, says at the beginning, upon my review of the material, I have ascertained that there is probable cause. She says... There's, there's a document, or I heard evidence. But so far, that seems to not be the case. We'll find out. We don't know for sure yet. But no one has said, yes, we're going to release the document in two days. We're, absolutely, don't worry about it. Uh, this is chilling because the idea that local law enforcement can get together and decide to raid a newspaper, try to destroy it, try to prevent it from publishing again, or at least in a timely way, based on small-town uh, uh, officials getting together. That's frightening. And the fact that it might stand in violation of federal law, even worse. And the reason why I think this is important is because we keep hearing story after story about the erosion of democratic principles and, and the First Amendment's guarantee of freedom of the press. Uh, for that to be so violated, it's yet another step in this descent into... Um, anti-democratic uh, polity and, and perhaps even, I hate to use the word flippantly, but 
I think it's real fascism, which is just um, a perfect segue to our guest, uh, Lester Little. He's a professor from Smith College. He's an historian. Um, he's a senior fellow at the Con Liberal Arts Institute at Smith College, and he has been uh, studying Giuseppe Mazzini, someone that uh, I think we all should know about, but we don't know enough about. And I just want to welcome you, Professor Little, and thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. So what is the Mazzini Society, and why should we be aware of it? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the, the Mazzini Society uh, was formed by um, I- Italians, entirely Italians, here in the United States, um, who were opposed to the fascist regime of Mussolini. And um, they had all left Italy, but then just didn't want to, you know, work into American society. Uh, they wanted to do what they could uh, to spread the word, especially among the uh, very large um, Italian-American population, uh, because they uh, tended, and with uh, their newspapers, to uh, support the Mussolini regime. And so they, uh, you know, extended their efforts uh, to go to meetings of Italian-American organizations, um, mainly in the East Coast, um, up and down the coast they would go, um, entirely at their, you know, own expense, um, to present arguments of their opposition to, uh, to fascism and the, the reasons for being here. Eventually, of course, in gaining support for the American, what turned out to be the crucial element in this, and encouraging the entry of the United States into conflict with the Mussolini regime. Well, how did, how did they fail? I mean, you said, here's all this enormous effort fighting fascism. Mussolini came to power and was uh, Adolf Hitler's uh, cohort in trying to make fascism take over the world. They failed, right or wrong? Well, I don't think in the long run and, and at all. I mean, um, the Americans, of course, um, intervened. And, um, no, the, the regime came down. But, I mean, um, there were even... Um, um, you know, Mussolini um, agents in the United States, um, you know, trying to, you know, go after these people. Um, and so, um, no, no, it was a very serious um, uh, matter, which in the intervention, of course, um, it was the um, intervention of the United States um, in, in the war that, that brought that regime down. Professor Lester Little, you, um, you're an expert, you're an historian, and you've really focused on Italy in your work. You've written extensively about Italy, and I could see why uh, you were quite interested in this American um, uh, sort of uh, effort to stop Mussolini. But uh, first of all, could you just tell us a little bit about Giuseppe, and I think I pronounced it uh, as it uh, phonetically reads, M A Z Z I N I, 
but you've corrected me. It's Mazzini when you have two Z's in, in Italian. But um, tell us about Giuseppe, please. About my studies? About Giuseppe Mazzini. Yeah. Oh, um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I don't, don't have a, a, a great deal to say about that. I, I need to assure you that I am not an expert um, in, in any uh, phase of modern um, history. I'm a specialist in the Middle Ages of, of Europe. So this is purely on my own that I have this um, interest, but I appreciate it um, and um, approach it you know, as a you know, professional historian. And um, so with... Um, well, well, maybe I should, leave, maybe I should with, rephrase the question and I could just say that that um, Giuseppe Mazzini, who was a an Italian nationalist, and he his thoughts led to many attribute to his thinking uh, the end of the city state and the rise of the Italian national government, um, and uh, he was very much uh, admired by Gandhi and by Woodrow Wilson and by many others. Uh, in terms of his desire to democratize uh, Italy and later Europe. I'm wondering why the Mazzini Society, which named after him, that was an anti-fascist organization, why do you think it's relevant to today? Why do you think it's important that we be aware of it in today's political climate? Uh, It was Mazzini who really... um is the you know strongest um, uh, advocate of uh, and and defender of uh, the notion of an uh, a democratic republic in Italy, and uh, such an organization um, was um, was formed, uh, and the the ruler. Of, remember, Italy was not a united country. There were many, many different states. And right there, centered in Rome, was the papal state. And um, the uh, pope um, was, was you know, effectively ruled um, in, um, as a king, and um, not using that term, but I mean, that's what it was the equivalent of. And... Um, and Mazzini was in favor of a democratic republic, and um, of course um, Garibaldi uh, is a well-known figure um, for you know his fighting for that in um, in South America, you know, against the uh, Spanish rule, and so um, when uh, he returned, also um, there was a you know a series of uh, ferocious battles. Uh, Fought. Um, so that's where uh, um, Mazzini m- maintained and articulated clearly the notion of a uh, a free, democratic, um, open, republican government in in Italy. So the you know the, the memory of that remained very strong. Uh, I think Dan, Dan, you have a question. Yeah, and so my question is, how did this society get created here in Northampton, the Mazzini okay. Society? Tell us uh, that. This, uh, exactly. Um, the uh, professor um, of Italian um, um, here and um, 
um, that is, uh, you know, Michele Cantarella. Um, uh, he was uh, very closely associated with um, an, another um, anti-fascist who had left Italy, uh, and this was um, a very, very famous um, uh, professor um, uh, named uh, Salvemini. And um, Salvemini was at teaching at Harvard. Um, and it turned out that both uh, Salvemini um, and uh, Cantarella were um, from Sicily. They were Sicilians and uh, had a lot in common. Salvemini was... Um, not married um, at the time. I don't actually know whether he was a widower or uh, or never had been. But um, he was alone in Cambridge, and um, he came regularly to Northampton and stayed with uh, Michele and Elena. Um, and so they were very, very uh, close. And um, they spent many of their weekends... Um, uh, driving to v- different places um, as far as they could go. I mean, they went maybe not much further into the country than to Philadelphia, but they would uh, often plan to go together, always on these weekends when they were able to get away, uh, to go to some Italian-American club. Could I know, Professor, let me interrupt. When, what year are we talking about? When was this happening? Um, it was in the, um, in the later 30s. And um, the um, crucial date of, uh, of founding, the, the very uh, earliest part of the founding of this, um, is in um, uh, September uh, 1939. And was there was this in contradistinction to uh, 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 people in the United States who were supporting uh, fascism in Italy? Well, mainly the. Um, it, you know, a lot of people didn't care, uh, but um, sides were often taken, and the very, very large, um, uh, you know, contingent of um, immigrants from Italy were, you know, they're pro-Italian, and they wanted to keep their Italian identity. Um, but uh, they were people of all the, you know, different uh, classes, and. Uh, just were in support of that. They was a great government and proud to be Italian and so on, as every other ethnic group, uh, you know, who moved to the United States. Well, I'm proud to be, um, um, even though I maybe would almost, um, you know, prefer to stay here. Well, I guess... I had relatives back at home and so on and so on, and so they were very favorable to, to the government, but they didn't see or realize that, um, well, what you like about America, you know, now um, just uh, is not happening in, in Italy. Uh, uh, professor, so we're, we're going to have to take a break. We are talking to Professor sure. Lester Little. When we come back, I want to ask him, in, in the time that we have left, I want sure. to ask him whether the climate today, uh, I led with a story here about what's happening in Kansas and the uh, invasion by police apparently apparently unlawful invasion of newspaper office because they didn't like the content of what the newspaper was doing. I want to talk about whether we're seeing a resurgence of fascism here in the United States. We'll be right back with Professor Little right after these messages.
Because she missed the scenery The native dances and the charming songs But wait a minute Something's wrong More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Some people make insurance sound so simple. You know, just call 1-800-INSURANCE. We'll save you money. Sounds pretty simple. So you call, give your credit card, and you're insured. They're hoping you'll never call back. Hoping you'll never have a claim. Because that's when insurance isn't so simple. In fact, it can get outright complicated. So many insurance claims have some little thing, or not so little thing, that ends up with a difference in what the insurance company thinks they owe you and what you think you should get. Maybe that nice person who signed you up at 1-800-INSURANCE will work it out for you. Or make Whalen Insurance your local insurance agent. When we sign you up, don't be surprised if our rates are lower than the 800 number. We'll get every available discount for you. We'll get you the right coverage. And if you ever need help with a claim, our door is open. Whalen Insurance. Call us for a quote. 586-1000. Your local agent working in partnership with Arbella Insurance. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Does your knee pain keep getting worse? How about that pain in your shoulder, hip, or back? Don't let them tell you steroids and surgery are your only options. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics can make that pain go away with all-natural advanced regenerative medicine. They're helping people here every day with these amazing natural treatments that restore and repair damaged joint tissue. It's like turning back the clock. Regenerative medicine uses concentrated healing agents from your own body to stimulate that damaged tissue in your joints so they can work again like they're supposed to. And there's zero downtime. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in this exciting medical breakthrough. Patients here are getting real lasting relief and are saying no to surgery and drugs. If you have pain due to injury or arthritis, check out this remarkable option. And the consultation is free. Call QC Kinetics now at 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We are back. Bill, I just wanted to ask you, these stories about the Mazzini Society, which was born here in Northampton in people's apartments in 1939, concerned by Italian immigrants about what was happening in Italy, what Mussolini was doing in Italy. Uh, is it, does, do you think there's any sort of uh, familiarity uh, as we look at our national polity uh, between what we see as a resurgence of fascism and fascism that they were looking at in 1937? Are you concerned about that? Well, I think the historic and historical precedent is deeply disturbing, is more than analogous. And I think that what the uh, society of Italian and Italian immigrants fighting fascism in their home country or their country of origin, what it teaches us is the importance of stepping up, speaking out, and calling what we see what it is. And that's what the Mazzini Society did. Did not do successfully, obviously, uh, but nonetheless did the right thing. And uh, we have with us a historian and Professor Emeritus from Smith uh, and its Department of History. We have uh, Lester Little, who's done work 
on the Mazzini Society. Professor, uh, do you have concerns about the, uh, the health of our democracy in the context of your work looking at the Mazzini Society? Should we be concerned? You know, I'm I'm very concerned about these matters, um, but um, you know, it, it doesn't stem, you know, exclusively, you know, at all from um, this particular, you know, um, historical incident. I mean, it's part of the whole whole view I see of, uh, especially of of European history and the way we we relate to it, um, and we've you know formed a very different kind of society from really, you know, any uh, other country in the world. Um, and so, um, yes, but I'm not sure how, you know, my own, you know, personal politics um, necessarily fit into this. But, um, yes, I, I, I'm all for, you know, opposing in, in all the ways we can, and, you know, those uh, precedents or whatever uh, actions that are taken or recommendations or policies that uh, violate my sense of what uh, the American Constitution provides for. Well, that's a great place so to it, leave it. It is, it is very worrying, of course, yeah. Yeah, that, that is uh, a wonderful place to leave it, if that's a wonderful place at all. We have been speaking with Professor Emeritus uh, Lester Little, the Smith College professor who has um, been looking at the Mazzini Society and uh, its anti-fascist uh, political work that was formed on a Democratic and Republican basis in 1939 uh, to address the threat of fascism. And Thank significantly you. here in the Valley. Right here in Northampton, and, in people's apartments, and, where we should all yeah. be doing our work. And Dan. Is, is there a book, uh, Professor, you'd recommend if people want to learn more about this to read? Um, nothing really very um, uh, close and up up to date, um, but um, there is a small section in a in a recent book, um, uh, which is called Margaret Fuller F U L L E R, and it goes on in the long title to say Transatlantic Crossings in a Revolutionary Age. Um, she was. Um, Later, um, the early 19th century, in the in the Concord group, it's just that in high school we all learned maybe something about, um, you know, the great you know American writers. Um, all they are basically in Concord, Massachusetts, except she was the girl there with a whole lot of boys, and uh, doesn't get very much mention. Margaret Fuller was as smart as any of them. Well, uh, so people should just pay attention. It is yep. the Mazzini Society, M-A-Z-Z-I-N-I. Uh, it's an important historical thing and brought to you by historian uh, Professor Little from Smith College. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be back with Writer's Block and Megan Zinn and some really special guests right after this. Thanks for this. People out there. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. 
Protesters gathered at Northampton City Hall to rally against alleged police brutality on Saturday. Workers Unite organized the protest after an incident of alleged police brutality against a 60-year-old woman during a traffic stop in Northampton back in April. This comes after Northampton police pulled over Maricel Driosh for a broken headlight, threw her on the ground to get her out of the car, then pepper sprayed her. Attorney Dana Goldblatt is representing Driosh. So this is not for policing excessive force. And in fact, Jody Casper made a statement that she is forbidden from disciplining him because according to standards of policing that they reviewed, this is what he was supposed to do. Driosh is now seeking financial compensation from the city. Thomas Coulomb, former Ware Fire Chief, has been indicted for embezzling over $28,000 by a Hampshire County grand jury. He will be arraigned on four counts of larceny over $1,200 at a future date. Amherst African Heritage Reparations Committee will present a final report to the town council next month. Affordable housing, home ownership opportunities, and educational opportunities for youth will most likely top the recommendations. The assembly is still looking for public input following a survey earlier this spring. The town has committed $2 million obtained through cannabis tax revenue for reparations initiatives. We're going to have a bit of a sun cloud mix. Overall dry conditions, highs are in the low to mid 80s. And tonight the showers could roll through in the late evening, early into tomorrow morning with lows in the low to mid 60s. Then on Tuesday, tomorrow showers are going to be early in the day, go on throughout most of the day. Those highs are going to be in the low to mid 70s. I'm Jack Wood with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. 
And welcome back to the show. It is time for Writer's Block with Megan Zinn, who always brings us just the most fascinating authors, editors, distributors of books. Um, I need to know more about books and where they come from. Megan? Well, we're going to find out a little bit about that, because um, today we're going to be talking about the history of books, which is something that has always fascinated me. And I love rare and antiquarian books and, and the hunt for that kind of thing. So my guests are Emily Todd, who is the Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Eastern Connecticut State University, and Matteo Pangallo, um, Associate Professor of English at Virginia Commonwealth University. And they are the co-editors of Teaching the History of the Book, which was published in May by the University of Massachusetts Press. Yay, you, yay, you, yay, UMass Press. Although they teach um, far away, both live in the Valley. Um, and uh, it's not yet scheduled, but they will be speaking at the Five College Book History Seminar this fall at UMass. And if you're interested, you can check the uh, UMass Renaissance Center website, which will have information. And just one last thing, the um, UMass Press is offering a 30% discount if you order their book from their website. If you use the discount code MAS103, which I'll repeat again later. So if you uh, love our conversation, you can check out the book. So welcome. Welcome, Emily and Matteo. Thank you for being here. So tell us first about the book, uh, Teaching the History of the Book. What, what's in it? So Teaching the History of the Book, it's a uh, collection of 39 chapters. We have 50 contributors. Um, we have uh, writers who are professors, teachers, public librarians, uh, archivists, uh, book conservators, bookmakers, and artists, all of whom are uh, talking about the different ways they approach teaching the history of the book uh, as a subject in itself, but also using um, book history as a methodology to teach other courses uh, across a range of different institutions, undergraduate students, uh, graduate students, future librarians, community mm -hmm. college students, and, and uh, artists, and so forth. Um, and so it's a really, it's a diverse collection with a lot of different voices, and we're very proud of it. Wonderful. We're especially proud that we have contributors from a wide range yeah. of institutions, mm -hmm. so community colleges, regional comprehensive, rare book libraries, uh, research universities, so again, a, a wide range of contributors, and who really bring us into their classrooms mm -hmm. and help us see how they teach the history of the book. Oh, lovely. Um, and so why did you decide to get the, to work together to edit this book? How did that come about? Well, I, um, so when I started teaching at um, Virginia Commonwealth University, I wanted uh, to teach a course on book history. I wanted to see how my colleagues around the world were doing it. Um, so I, I thought it would be useful to have a collection like this. And because there wasn't one, I thought it would be good to create one. And when I was thinking about who I would want to work with to put the collection together, um, I had taught for a little while at Westfield State when Emily was the uh, oh, chair yes. of English there. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew that she had expertise in teaching the history of the book, that she was uh, a dedicated and experienced teacher. And um, just I knew from her work as, a, as when she was chair that she's also extremely uh, great to work with, just very, very generous and collaborative. And, and so I thought she would be an ideal co-editor on the volume. Thank you, Matteo. I was really thrilled when Matteo approached me with this idea. Um, it brought me back to my early career as a scholar and as a teacher, and it came right before the pandemic and right when I had started my work as a dean at Westfield State. So working on this project connected me to scholars from around the country and really around the world who were doing innovative work in book history. 
And therefore, at a moment when I was beginning an administrative role, it connected me to the work of the university, to the work of teaching and scholarship. Oh, and yeah. Matteo was an ideal editor. He kept us, co-editor, he kept us on track. And <laughs> Wonderful. The book is here because of his book. Wonderful. Um, I'm, I'm speaking with Emily Todd and Matteo Pangalo, uh, the uh, co-editors of Teaching the History of the Book. And what tell for both of you, what drew you to the history of the book as a subject to teach? How did you get into this? I was always interested in history and literature. In fact, as a, a college student, I couldn't decide which subject to major in, so I decided to major in an inter interdisciplinary major, American Studies, mm -hmm. which allowed me to kind of combine history and literature. And I did a lot of archival work as an undergraduate at the Sophia Smith Archives right up the road. And I um, learned about the history of the book as a graduate student, a PhD student at the University of Minnesota uh, through Revolution in the Word, which is Ooh. a book by mm -hmm. Kathy Davidson about the early American novel. And she focused on authors, readers, publishers, and really grounded her argument in the archives. So I was excited about her project. I have to say, though, I also think I'm drawn to the subject because my father is mm -hmm. a, was a uh, magazine editor and book editor. So as I was growing up, I spent a lot of time kind of listening in on conversations between writers and editors and seeing books in the making. So the field attracted me for that kind of personal reason. I love that. I, I should just point out uh, that, that I've known Emily since she was a little girl, and her father, Dick Todd, just an amazing, as mm -hmm. is her mother, Susan Todd, but Dick was the former publisher of the Atlantic Monthly, mm -hmm. and he had he, he was so respected by so many writers that uh, people just uh, were zealously vying for his attention to their their pieces. Emily comes from literary stuff. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's grand. Yeah. That's amazing. And he co-authored a book uh, on writing mm -hmm. uh, that is really quite extraordinary. If you want to plug that for a second, it's really oh, yeah, how, it's book? how to write. Yes, um, he and Tracy Kidder co-authored a book called Good Prose, The Art of Nonfiction, which actually for book historians might be a really interesting study of the relationship between a writer and an editor in future future scholars might turn to. Yeah. Tracy Kidder, who told me that uh, his better half as a writer just passed away when Dick Todd passed away. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, Tracy Kidder often said that without, without your dad, without... Richard Todd, he would never have succeeded as yeah. a writer. Yeah. I'm sorry, Mateo, we just left yeah. you in the <laughs> dust here. <laughs> I was just going to say that I'm, I'm sorry I didn't find that class at uh, University of Minnesota because Emily and I were did not know each other, but we were both in graduate school at the University of Minnesota at the same time, both taking English and American history classes. I'm not quite sure why and we didn't overlap, and I'm not quite sure why I didn't find that class. University of Minnesota has a wonderful American studies yes. program and great history uh, faculty and so as an English PhD student I was able to take advantage of yeah. both the history courses and the mm -hmm. American studies offerings. Right. So Matteo, tell us how you um, got into your in interest in um, antique books, history, um, the history of the book and, um, and, and teaching it. So um, I, I grew up also in a, in a house filled with books. My mother was a librarian, mm, uh, an academic wonderful. librarian and um, my particular field of study is on is Shakespeare and Renaissance drama, and it's really hard to teach or study Shakespeare and Renaissance drama without sort of finding yourself adjacent to the work of book history, mm -hmm. because a lot of studying Shakespeare's original plays, original texts, is thinking about 
how they were written and circulated in manuscript in the playhouse and right. then transferred to print, often without the author's permission, mm -hmm. and then how modern editors today uh, prepare editions for readers and students and actors uh, from those early editions. Um, so I was always um, in undergraduate and doing my MA program um, adjacent to book history, though I didn't really know it, and I didn't really know that it was a field in itself until I got to UMass Amherst for my doctoral um, studies. I took Professor Joseph Black's course mm -hmm. on the history of the book, mm -hmm. um, and it just opened my mind up in incredible ways, yeah. not just to thinking about book history as a, as a subject uh, for study, but as a way of teaching other students mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and helping them think sort of in new and critical ways about the material object of the book. Yeah. Um, my guests are Emily Todd and Matteo Pangallo, co-editors of Teaching the History of the Book. Do you find um, that the students you work with, which I assume are primarily undergraduates, um, or, or particular in undergra with undergraduates, that they know much about the subject of the history of the book, or they, do they tend to come to it blank slates? So I think in some ways um, my experience that I was just describing is kind of typical mm -hmm. in that a lot of students um, that I have encountered come to my book history classes already with some uh, instinctual ideas about the history of the book, but they don't have mm -hmm. necessarily the, the language or the expertise mm -hmm. or familiarity with um, the, the scholarship in it or the pro approaches and tools uh, to use to do book history work. And um, one of the great moments in the classroom is that is when that sort of that light turns yeah, on and they realize, well, no, I know this or I mm -hmm, think about this mm -hmm. and I care about this. I just didn't know that it was an entire field of study. Um, so that's been my experience. Yeah, Emily, what about what your experience with I, I opening opening up kids' minds with this? I agree that they, uh, we write in the introduction, in fact, that the book is arguably, although this might change, the most familiar object of students' educational yeah. experience. Yeah. And so teaching book history, though, defamiliarizes that object. Mm -hmm. It helps mm -hmm. them look at aspects of the book that they might not have looked at before, thinking about the title page, thinking about how the book is produced, looking at marginalia. Mm. And so what, what I... Can you tell us what marginalia is, for those who don't know? What, um, uh, you know, marks that readers would leave mm -hmm. in the margins mm -hmm. of their reading. In fact, I did that as I was preparing for the interview, <laughs> right. writing little notes to myself in the margin of our introduction. Um, so students will end up learning to look at parts of the book that they hadn't looked at before and to ask questions and make discoveries mm -hmm. uh, that they um, that are really fresh and, but, and but new. That, that sort of is a segue to my question. I'm feeling a little, uh, at best, naive, maybe ignorant here. Like when we're talking about the history of the book, are we talking about the development of writing? Are we talking about printing? Are we talking about when paper was invented? What are we talking about in the history of the book? Yes, all of, the, all of those. <laughs> all of the above. Yeah, the, no, the history of the book, one of the great things about it, and, I, and this is what I, I always tell my students, is that it is, it is, it's capacious. It is a very large field of study because it can be any and all of those things. And I encourage my students to think about it that way because then they're more likely to find the one thing they're really interested in. Like if you have a student who's really interested in paper and how paper is made and the impact of paper on the, on the text we read, then that's what they can gravitate towards. But it's really, you know, what I, what I tell the students at the start of the semester, the history of the book, you know, every book tells a story, every copy of every book. It's the story that's in the pages, but also the story of the pages. Mm -hmm. And the history of the book is exploring how those two intersect, how they connect with each other, how books make history and how books are made by history. Um, and whether we're talking about a papyrus scroll or a handwritten manuscript or a printed codex um, or a digital text, 
um, that that constitutes book history. Yeah. So um, I'm speaking here with Emily Todd and Matteo Pangallo, who have co-edited Teaching the History of the Book, which is a collection of um, information from faculty, um, educators from a wide variety of institutions and disciplines, talking about how they teach the history of the book and how they use this in their um, classrooms. And we'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll hear more about this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Smith Academy in Hatfield is accepting school choice applications now. With an average class size of 10, Smith Academy supports all students. They offer more than 20 clubs, 8 AP courses, 14 sports teams, work study, and internships, and free dual enrollment at HCC and Smith College. Computer science for all students. With a graduation rate of over 95%, most college bound, Smith Academy can prepare you for the next step. No cost to apply or attend. Call us or go to HatfieldPS.net and schedule a tour today. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. Would you like a better world? It's as easy as grabbing a hammer and building a home. Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity builds strength, stability, and self-reliance through affordable home ownership in Hampshire and Franklin County. It's not a handout, it's a hand up. Habitat homes are built with donations of material, land, and services. Future homeowners and volunteers create a partnership with Habitat for Humanity to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Help transform the world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. PVHabitat.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue this writer's block with Megan Zinn with our very special guests today, Emily Todd and Matteo Pangallo. They are the co-editors of a new book, Teaching the History of the Book, a book about books. (laughs) And they are both, well, members of the Valley community. They live here and they teach far away. So for those of us who didn't grow up in a world that was electronically uh, uh, tied together, 
how do you happen to be, how do you both happen to be teaching from here and putting together this book, which is a, just a magnificent document and is published by the University of Massachusetts Press mm -hmm. just recently. So tell us a bit about you. <laughs> Let's Emily, start. Emily. I, I'm now in a dean role. I'm the dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Eastern Connecticut State University, which is just about an hour and 15 minutes from here. And I, so I no longer teach, although I'm happy that uh, one of my colleagues is a, is a book historian. And so book history courses are being taught at Eastern Connecticut State University. And I commute and also stay over at an Airbnb a few nights a week. So I do not work remotely. I work in person and I am really happy to be part of this new community. I was at Westfield State for 23 years working in the English department and also serving as a dean there. Mm -hmm. Mateo? So um, my wife and I lived in the in the valley in the Amherst area for many years when I was doing the doctoral study, uh, doctoral program at UMass Amherst. Um, we love it here, and um, it's where we wanted to raise our kids. My wife got into a graduate program so uh, at UMass Amherst in education, and so I, like many academics, am sort of living a multi-state life and spending time uh, both in the sort of wonderful, quaint, quiet town of Shutesbury, mm -hmm. and then uh, also time during the semester in the um, richly vibrant and exciting and wonderful city of uh, Richmond, Virginia. So two places. Lovely. Uh, um, so, um, in the book, I think you talk about your experience um, having taught the history of the book and taking your students to a rare book library or some, some type of place where they can actually interact with um, rare books, unusual books, um, antiquarian books. Um, tell us, do you have any memorable experiences from, the, from students experiencing that from the first time, for the first time? I was able to take students to rare book rooms, rare book libraries throughout the valley and, and even in Worcester at the American mm -hmm. Antiquarian Society. Mm -hmm. So back in 2001, I took students to the American Antiquarian Society, and that's just a beautiful space. I encourage people to go visit it. They have public tours on Wednesdays at 3 p.m., ah. so anyone could go. And I have also taken students to the Smith College Rare Book Room and the Amherst College Rare Book Room. One moment I remember is when I was teaching Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, and we looked at the first edition of mm -hmm. Leaves of Grass at Amherst College, and it was just thrilling to be able to see that copy and look at the words that we had read in an anthology um, in their original format. And I think students also were drawn to some of the practices and rituals in the rare book room. They're beautiful, inspiring spaces, but also preserving the book's spine by putting it in a book cradle, mm -hmm. learning about the book snake that helps to protect the pages. So learning about all of those practices yeah. that help us preserve books. Was yeah, wearing exciting. gloves, I assume, when it's handled? Sometimes, Sometimes. yes. Sometimes. Yes. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, um, Matteo, tell us a bit about some of your experiences. Yeah, I, mean, I love taking students on uh, field trips to book history-related sites. So I've taken students to uh, uh, book conservation labs, which are a fascinating place to see um, sort of the intersection between science and the humanities mm -hmm. at work. Um, taking students to museums of printing, newspaper printing labs, um, uh, uh, artist spaces, and of course, bookstores, which are always fun uh, yeah. to go to with students. But going to rare book rooms is really, it is a special treat for a lot of the reasons that Emily just mentioned, right, that that introducing students to the sort of the rituals of it, but then also teaching students about 
um, how special collections and archives and rare book rooms uh, shape their collections around particular collecting interests. Mm -hmm. And a book doesn't have to be old or particularly rare or unique um, or expensive to be interesting or valuable for the study of book history. Um, I've uh, at VCU, the Special Collections has a fantastic archive of uh, underground zines oh, and cool. um, graphic mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. novels and comic books from the 1960s and 70s uh, into the 80s. And they tell this just a really interesting story from the ground level of mm -hmm. civil, the civil rights movement and the queer rights movement. And so taking students in there and, and having showing them that they, as students and researchers have access to that archive yeah, and can use yeah. it as primary source material for their own research. Yeah. Megan Zinn, I have a question for you and, and, and for our two co-editors on the history of book as well, which is, uh, Matteo, what do you think of e-books? Mm. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, as I said before, the history of the book is kind of a capacious term, and so there are book historians that study the textual book or the, or the, or the book in digital format. Um, you know, Emily and I were just talking before the show today about it's really interesting to think about how the field of book history really started to evolve or take shape as a discipline um, with the rise of digital texts in the in the 80s and, and 90s. Um, and, and I think perhaps that's because a lot of scholars understood that one way to help us think about the seismic shift towards digital text uh, and the future of the book is by looking back at the history of the book and understanding you know, what happened when we went from uh, primarily manuscript culture to this new invention of the printing press, or from hand press printing to machine press printing in the 1840s and 50s, which radically changed the nature of the book. Um, so the digital text, you know, it's in some ways, uh, it's a familiar story, the, the shift in media. In other ways, it's going to be, you know, completely radically different for what it means, especially for book historians in 400 years, what's yeah. going to be around. Megan, do you, do you read e-books? I do. I, I do read e-books and I, I read kind of everything. I usually have um, an audio book going, uh, uh, a book that, um, uh, a traditional book in, in my hand and an, in, and an e-book. Usually the e-books are just for kind of convenience Thing. One thing I love about ebooks, which I think is an interesting element of this story, is that people can highlight things in ebooks. And if you've gotten it from the library, even I think sometimes if you've purchased it, you can see what other people have highlighted in that book. So there's an interesting, it allows for an interesting conversation going on between readers, which I think is cool. Um, but I'm also somebody who still loves the hardcover book, and I don't think they'll ever go away. How about you, Emily? Do you read, do you use ebooks? I don't. I have read ebooks on my Kindle, but I have to say I mostly read print. And I also listen to books uh, during my commute. So that's been new for me. Uh, but I, I, I would say I go back and forth between print and audio. I'm really interested in Megan's comments about traces of other readers mm -hmm. and thinking about Amazon reviews and Goodreads and various ways in which we have people's responses to what we read now available and thinking about how those will be saved, if at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, we just got a, a, about a minute left. Um, I did want to ask, what are some areas, some um, places in the area where people could go to experience collect book collections, um, historical or interesting book collections in a you know, reasonable range of the valley? I mentioned the American Antiquarian Society, which is in Worcester, mm -hmm. and their public tours on Wednesdays. There are also the rare book rooms in the area, Smith and Amherst, the Yiddish Book Center, oh, which is yeah. closed now, but will reopen in the middle with a new exhibit in the middle of October. Also going to antiquarian books 
sales and yeah. used bookstores. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I am just so glad that, that we had the opportunity to talk with the co-editors of Teaching the History of the Book, Emily Todd and Matteo Pangalo. Thank you so much for joining us today. Megan, thank you for bringing thank them you. to us. We could find those, your book at an uh, independent bookstore near you. Yes, or order it from the UMass Press for a 30% discount, MAS This is Talk the Talk. Do you know a woman of impact? Nominate her now for the Business West Women of Impact Awards, honoring women who are respected for accomplishments in their professional life, who give back to the community, and are sought out as advisors and mentors. Business West is looking for the 2023 Women of Impact. Help Business West discover them. Go to businesswest.com to nominate a woman you know making an impact in the community. The deadline to nominate is September 5th. Hi, this is Tom from 4-H. What will the next 100 years look like for today's youth? According to the 4-H members of Hampshire counties, there are no limits. Youth, supported by adult 4-H club leaders, are being prepared to take on any role they can imagine. Astronaut, director, hockey player, surgeon, engineer, and CEO. These are just some of the roles that a recent survey shows that our 4-Hers not only dream about, but are preparing for. Join the 4-H team. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station. It's a 